evidence and answers. A new survey reveals that the number of young adults identifying as evangelical Christians is quickly declining in America, while the number of young adults who identify as religious nuns, those who identify as atheists, agnostic, or unaffiliated with any religion, has tripled in the last 10 years. America and the church is quickly changing and heading in the wrong direction. What can we do to change this trend? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Now let's jump right in with part two of Pat's interview with Probe Ministries president, Kirby Anderson. So, I mean, if these percentages are right, you're talking anywhere from 70 to 85% of those in the evangelical church do not have a biblical worldview. The vast majority don't have a biblical worldview. That's what these surveys seem to be showing. Isn't that right? That is. And again, and that's let me, a high number. You raised that question. That was what uh, some people have questioned when we did these original surveys. I call it the uh, K. Arthur challenge or the Os Guinness challenge, because both K. Arthur and Os Guinness, when we presented some of this, said, well, then I don't think these people were Christians. And first of all, you can go back and look at the questions and the answers and say, no, they're Christians. And I think what we have, Pat, is an interesting irony. We have a number of individuals who are less than 45 years of age and and a good number of them are less than 30 years of age, who have had a born-again experience. It's meaningful to them. They actually maybe go to church on some regular basis. They maybe listen to Christian music. But when you start asking them questions about orthodoxy, they are saved in their heart. There's reason to believe they are Christians, but they're not thinking biblically in their heads. And for people that say, well, this is probably just a one-off. Your probe survey doesn't match anything else. As you well know, one of our colleagues at Probe, Steve Cable, took the time to go through all these other surveys, Barna surveys, Lifeway surveys, there's surveys done by Christian Smith, Baylor, GSS, and the rest, and show that if you ask the same kinds of questions, you get similar answers. The advantage of ours is we tried to ask some questions that the Pew survey and others have never asked about whether you believe you can be saved by accepting Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus, or what you believe about pluralism, what you believe about toleration, and that's, I think, why we can add some, uh, if you will, some specificity to that. But anybody that's listening right now and thinking, eh, I just, I got to believe that's just a weird survey. They didn't ask the questions right. No, we've been able to compare that with other surveys. And when you ask the questions correctly and understand how to filter them out statistically, we come up with pretty similar kinds of answers, including uh, the ones about the nuns, because we actually have one of the charts that show you what we found compared to what other various groups like GSS surveys have found. And you see that ours is only slightly different just because we asked the question slightly differently. But you can see that we are dealing with some really significant issues that um, I'm glad you're allowing me to ch chance to really talk about today on the radio. Yeah, you talk about issues about salvation what we call pluralism or universalism. The majority of Christians believe there are many ways to God, not just through Jesus Christ. Tell us about that area of the survey that you did in regards to salvation and how does one attain eternal life? 
one of the things we did is we recognized that we have seen a problem of pluralism. And I think, Pat, your talk on is Jesus the only way is still one of the best out there. So if people have never heard you give that talk, they should schedule you to do so. Because of that, and because Michael Gleghorn on our staff and others have written about this as well, we ask some very specific questions, but I will narrow it down to just one. We ask them, do you agree that you can be saved by believing in Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus? Do you believe that those are all valid paths to salvation? And we could get as many as 60% of these young adults to agree with that statement. Now, you might say, well, most of those are probably all non-Christians. No, because, again, you can go to our probe website, and you can see that we've broken them down into this. So do you agree? Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God. If you disagreed, again, you had about 40% of the 40-somethings down to about 30% or 32% in round numbers of the 30-somethings, 20-somethings. Of course, you have much less for the other categories, other Protestant, Catholic, other religions, and unaffiliated. It's kind of interesting to see that even some of the non-Christians, even some of the unaffiliated, and I'm only talking about 5 to 10 percent, uh, disagreed with that, which was kind of intriguing. But nevertheless, what you're seeing is, is that just being born again doesn't separate you out as much as you would like to think, because if you look at the entire group, it's almost two-thirds, 65 percent. But even when you look at those individuals who you would think would be more likely to believe that you are saved only by Jesus, you find that very few of these young adults, whether they're in uh, born-again Christians in uh, Protestant denominations or just Protestants that did not claim to be born again or Catholics, they all pretty much uh, go along with the idea that there are many paths to salvation. And that's why this talk that I know that you do on a regular basis is so crucial because even though you might have these individuals who believe that they were saved by believing in Jesus, they live in this culture that's all very pluralistic and it's kind of this culture of non-judgmentalism. So they say to themselves, well, I was saved by Jesus, but I just can't believe that some of these other individuals who go to these other churches or they go to a synagogue or they go to a mosque or they go to a temple, I can't believe that they're not saved. So on that issue, they hold to a pluralistic view, even though in their minds they believe that they were saved by Jesus. And I think it brings us back to the need, again, we're talking about some of the application, the need for people to hear your message, the need for us also to explain the holiness of God and the reality of sin and how simply good works are not going to get you into heaven, good works are not going to help you merit favor before a holy and righteous God. And so there's a lot of miscommunication, and sometimes these are even coming from individuals who sit in churches, hear sermons, but don't necessarily understand the exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's well put. You know, and along with pluralism is this whole new definition of tolerance. Tell us what you're <laughs> survey revealed about those who embrace this new definition of tolerance. 
Well, and again, I've referred to that sometimes as the uh, Princess Bride myth. You might remember the character Mandy Patinkin and Princess Bride said, you know, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Of course, that was the word inconceivable. But I would say that the word that is getting completely redefined is tolerance. Now, I'm an older Christian, and I can remember not so long ago where the word tolerance meant that while I may disagree with an individual on their religious views, their political views, I would be tolerant. That was, I'd be accepting of their right to say it, but that wouldn't mean that I have to affirm something that I would believe was wrong. And yet today, as I said, we have this sort of gospel of non-judgmentalism, and that would suggest that then I'm not only supposed to affirm, but even sometimes celebrate those ideas. So again, as we look at the different groups, and I'll just break it down to the one easy one that we've been talking about, among these born-again Christians, again, this would be Generation Y, Generation Z, you could get only about a quarter of them, about 27% to be accurate, to disagree with the statement that it's important to let people know that I affirm as true their religious beliefs and practices. So if I'm engaged in a conversation with a Muslim and they say that I believe that I should follow the five pillars of Islam, that I hope that my good works will outweigh my bad works and Allah will allow me into heaven, that I am supposed to affirm that teaching, which I know is directly contradictory uh, to the gospel. Or if I'm talking to a Buddhist friend uh, or a Hindu friend and they're uh, talking about uh, karma and samsara and reincarnation, or they're talking about the, the four noble truths or things of that nature, I'm supposed to affirm that view. Well, Pat, again, we recognize that within the church, we need to say, look, we can teach people and need to teach people to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. So certainly we believe in the golden rule. We would want to treat other people would like to be treated, but we are not given the permission within the church to go and affirm people's false view of how they are saved, their false view of who God is, their false view of who Jesus is, or even their false view of the Bible, and yet it is hard to get more than a little more than a quarter, and the actual percentage was 27%, that would actually say, no, that's not right. You shouldn't affirm that. You should be gracious, but you shouldn't affirm that. And of course, as you well know, when we talk about some of the issues of sexual orientation and a variety of others, not only are you supposed to in this culture affirm it, but even celebrate things that the Bible speaks against. So this is another one of these great challenges that we're finding here when we've done these surveys and started to ask some questions that haven't been asked in previous surveys by Pew and GSS and Lifeway because we are starting to see, a, if you will, sort of a cultural, almost philosophical shift on the part of some of these younger generations. Yes, and you touched on it just briefly. What percentage of Christians believe what the Bible says about sexual behavior? And again, we have uh, begun to ask them some questions about that. That's some of the material we're going to release in the future because each one of these surveys just take lots of data crunching and those kinds of things. But as you might imagine, I can't give you specific percentages, but I can give you the general tender of what we've seen as we've gone through 3,100 different surveys is that, as you imagine, that, uh, if you will, gospel of non-judgmentalism is there as well. 
And we've moved from a time where almost two-thirds, nearly three-fourths of Americans back in the 1990s thought, for example, that same-sex marriage was wrong, now to almost three-fourths say that same-sex marriage is fine and as good as any kind of sexual activity, any kind of marriage relationship. And so when you get into talking about whether or not homosexuality is sin, you're getting into very small single digits sometimes in terms of those who are born-again Christians that would accept that. And certainly in single digits, when you talk about those who are not born again, either in Protestant or Catholic churches or even the unaffiliated. So we are dealing with some remarkable changes, not only in terms of what is happening in the culture in terms of salvation, but we're also running into this in terms of those issues that are cultural and political issues that we deal with almost every single day here in the United States. Wow. So you said 75% in the 90s would have agreed same-sex marriage or relationship would be sinful. And now, uh, about 30 years later, it swung the other way. 75% uh, in the church would say now a same-sex relationship is fine. I mean, that's just staggering. Yeah, again, that's a Gallup poll. We didn't do that one, but Gallup asked, is it wrong? So again, they may not use the word sinful, but they've asked that question more than once. And so that's where I'm kind of jumping outside of our survey to look at an old Gallup survey, but I've had a chance to look at that. And we're going to try to, as we release some of the new material in the survey, talk about that. Didn't surprise anybody that you would find some of that change, because if indeed you accept the idea that as an individual, I actually have to affirm firm an individual in their religious beliefs and practices, you can see how that is almost like the top of a watershed and leads to also an idea that I should affirm as an individual in terms of their sexual orientation. And so what we're seeing is it's difficult for our generations, these younger generations, to make some of these moral categories. I know also, for example, you teach on ethics, uh, for example, Word of Life and other places. And when you teach ethics, you teach them for from a biblical point of view, with a starting point that the Bible is God's word, that there are certain absolutes, there are certain proscriptive activities, and so you are, there are certain things you should do, certain things you should do. There's black and white. And there's a few places where there may be gray. Romans 14 kind of addresses that in terms of where people might feel something was inappropriate. But we live in a culture today where people don't want to believe in what we might call the law of non-contradiction. If A is true, the opposite of A by definition, has to be false in the same way at the same time. And so you have the same kind of mindset making its way into ethics. And so you have a growing number of individuals who are engaged in pluralism. And again, we haven't necessarily released the survey summary on that, but I can tell you just by looking at some of the responses that we have a growing percentage of the younger generation believing in relativism. And that's why I think, again, it is important to come back and teach not only a biblical worldview, but how to apply a biblical worldview to the issues of moral authority. Yes, Kirby, and I think the survey is right on. Speaking, you know, most of the time I'm speaking on the West Coast or left coast and here in Hawaii, and I'm on a lot of secular talk shows now, morning talk shows, and they're conservative talk shows here in Hawaii and California and others, and the most hostile phone calls I receive 
come from those who claim to be Christians. I was just recently, a couple weeks ago, on a radio show, and the host asked me something about homosexuality. And he says, does that go against what the Bible teaches? And I was a little caught off guard, and I said, well, yes, that goes against biblical teaching. And he said, what about transgenderism? And I said, yes, there's only two genders in the Bible. And People were calling up and they would start by saying, you know, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking, oh, great. We got a, a friendly phone call here. And he goes, it's people like you who are intolerant, who are judgmental and arrogant. It's people like you that cause wars and conflicts. It's people like you, you know, and things that I'm just, I always get caught off guard and I really shouldn't. The next phone call I get is, hi, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. And I'm like, great. We got a friendly phone call. And he goes, and, and it's people like you once again. I've, you know, my son is in a gay relationship. And there's nothing wrong. The Bible is fine with it. Gee, God loves everybody. And also, I continue to get caught off guard, but I shouldn't. But, you know, when I'm speaking in churches, this is happening quite often now, where I might just mention gay marriage and a side comment, or uh, without Christ, people spend eternity in hell, separated from him forever. Or transgender, there's only two genders in the Bible, male and female. And how many people in church will stand up Say something obnoxious. I've, I haven't seen this before. I'm seeing it a whole lot more now. Say something obnoxious to me in the middle of the sermon and make a big scene as they exit. And I'm seeing it more and more and more in churches that I speak at. And so I agree with you on what we're seeing here. Are you seeing that as well? Well, and again, I have jokingly said over the years that when I would speak, especially to youth groups, that uh, the most quoted verse was not John 3.16, it's uh, Matthew 7.1, judge not that you might be judged. And every time I would get that, I would say, now, just assuming that your interpretation is right, I don't agree with it, but uh, then can you explain a few verses later why Jesus refers to individuals as dogs and all sorts of stuff, and, and he makes comments about the Pharisees as whitewashed sepulchers and all that kind of stuff. That sounds pretty judgmental. I said, I think really what you're dealing with in Matthew 7 here is that Jesus is saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't look at the speck in someone else's eye when you've got a log in your own. But this has been used as a verse, and there are other comments being used up, even apart from the ch uh, church, saying, well, you're not to judge. Don't judge. You're not supposed to judge, not to make any moral judgments, which is, of course, a completely wrenching one verse out of Scripture. When you think of all the verses, you can go home tonight, for example, if you're listening to this, and maybe get on one of these computer programs and type in the Bible and then the word discernment or sound mind, sound judgment, moral choice, and you will see there are all sorts of verses that uh, both in the Old and New Testament encourage us and even really command us to make moral choices and to make moral discernment and to call people out for uh, any kind of immorality. So this is where we have, as a culture in the Christian world even, adopted kind of this doctrine, almost this uh, philosophy of non-judgmentalism, and a lot of that has to do with with personal experiences. I've noticed over the years that when I was teaching in a Bible school or a seminary, I would listen to the pronouns. When I first started teaching, this was back in the late 1980s, uh, even in 1970s sometimes, uh, when they talk about divorce, they'd say, no, those people. And then later on said, we, and I noticed that. When you talk about, um, for example, living together, cohabitation, they used to say, you know, those kids living together. Now, kids in our congregation living together. And then when they start talking about homosexuality, it was they, but then it was eventually, no, we, you know, we have people that have homosexual temptations inside the church. 
church. And in every case, you can see what has happened. We've sort of compromised our philosophy, our biblical admonitions, and our biblical statements to actually mirror the culture. And this is one of the reasons why that first survey we did was actually called Probe Culturally Captive Christians, because as you well know, what we were dealing with is that in Colossians 2.8, it tells us not to be taken captive by false teaching and false ideas. Or you could, in addition to Colossians 2.8, think of Romans 12.1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world. But we have within the church today, a lot of places where people have been conformed to a secular view of the world, conformed to kind of a tolerance view of the world, in part because they now know people that uh, they don't want to necessarily be judgmental of, and so they've changed their theology to match the world. And I recognize that you and I and other Christians are going to find more and more difficulty beginning to address some of these ethical issues, because they just simply can't bring themselves to say that certain kinds of behavior are right and certain kind of behavior is wrong, certain things are true, and by definition, other things are false. And yet that's the world that we're going to have to minister to, and it's due to everything from postmodernism in the truth category to relativism in the ethical world. And that's why in churches and in talk shows, the quickest way to pick a fight is not to even try to pick a fight, but just simply say that I believe the Bible is true and Bible says certain kind of behavior is wrong and certain kinds of actions are wrong, that will immediately raise the temperature in the room because people have bought into this idea of non-judgmentalism. Yes, well, Kirby, Generation Z, the generation that ends the Christian influence in America? That's a good question, because in every one of these groups, Pat, individuals that are, you know, we still have the best and the brightest. I still, on my radio program, have a millennial roundtable, and we try to even bring in some Gen Z in there as well. And so there are still very dedicated Christians who are Orthodox, but they're a smaller percentage. And so the question is, will that be the end? We would hope not, but it is certainly, I think, fair to say that whereas we were a Christian nation, and by that I don't mean that everybody he was a Christian. I don't mean that even all the founders were Christians, but I do mean that there was sort of a reigning Christian worldview, and that has evaporated for some time. But still, the hope was is that there would always be a remnant, and there is that remnant, but it's a much smaller remnant. And so the question is that unless we begin to speak to this culture, educate individuals about what a biblical worldview is, and help them begin to, if you will push off some of these dark ideas in the darkness of our culture, yes, we probably would predict a greater darkness. But apart from a revelation that comes from God or a revival or reformation, those are the things that we recognize are the great hope. But I think if you look at these numbers, you have to ultimately recognize that uh, this does not look good for the future, and it's all the more reason to redouble our effort and recognize how important this is. So for pastors listening, I would say that it's going to be even more important for you sometimes from the pulpit to address some of these issues. When we look at, for example, any of the athletic teams, whether it is oh, those that went to the World Series or those that go to 
to the Super Bowl, we know that they start with spring training. And so I think it's going to be important sometimes in the church to do a little bit of spring training, maybe do a series on the essential gospel. Uh, it's going to, or maybe to use a different analogy, since we're talking about some of the hostility out there, to actually see that church, maybe youth groups are basically like a boot camp to get them ready for engaging the world. And so I do see some positives in the midst of that, but I also think that I would be very naive if I weren't to say that these trends end up going in the other direction. And Pat, sometimes people say, is at the end of Christianity, some people say, what's the next generation? If you've had Generation X, Generation Y, Generation Z, what's next? It's interesting that Gene Twenge, who came up with the term iGen for Generation Z, says really there won't be another generation. Wow. Whereas those born after World War II uh, were the baby boomers because they all kind of came through a common set of experiences. And then you had the Generation X, which are the gen baby busters, you could call them, Generation Y, the millennials. They all had a kind of a common experience. But the argument is, is that we won't have in the future maybe a generational cohort because a lot of those individuals now aren't going through a common experience other than they're going through the common experience of social media, which also answers one of your other questions. Why is it you're seeing more and more secularism today? Well, young people in particular spend a lot of time in front of screens, computer screens, video screens, movie screens, or the screens on their phones. And if you think about that, the average young person today spends about 10 hours probably a day looking wow. at screens. If you multiply 10 times 7, that's 70 hours a week, and you're supposed to counteract that with a 45-minute sermon or a two-hour youth group, you can kind of see some of the challenges. So that's another action item, and that is I think pastors and others are going to have to warn about the dangers of some of the things that we identify as problems in social media. out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources. You'll find we have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcast like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to worship, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. <laughs>